Hi, I'm Blue. And I'm Yellow, and you're listening to The Colors Podcast. All right, today we are having a conversation about the white savior complex in education. Today we have two incredible educators who are the opposite of this stereotype, but we're using two texts. Guide for White Women Who Teach Black Boys, mm-hmm. um, and it's by Eddie Moore Jr., Allie Michael, and Marguerite De W. Uh, Parks. Mm-hmm. So beautiful, mm-hmm. and it's just basically a fat old book full of research <laughs> um, done on education through the last ten years. And um, the second book that we're using is White Teachers Who Teach in the Hood, and for everybody else too. And so um, today we have two lovely friends of mine who are the complete opposite of everything that we read about in this book. Um, but we want to pick their brains about what they did to address any biases or um, overcome any challenges they have in their um, schools or in their classrooms. So I'm going to have my friends introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Green. Hi, I'm Indigo. But just first off, like when you hear white savior complex, like you all both (laughs) made funny faces when you heard that. What do you, how do you react to that, that label? I think it would be negative in general. Like that's my first thought is that is a negative term. Like that is a negative term because that refers to like poor negative practice. practice. I envision like someone like that I can save the world or I can save this community because there's something wrong with this community and like that idea that your value, your mindset is better and that you're not valuing what's currently going on or what's important to the group of people that you're working with. Yeah. I feel like in the education context, I think of like someone who watched Freedom Writers once and was like, I'm gonna do that. And it's like, I've <laughs> never seen that. That's exactly like, a movie. Freedom Writers one time. Like, and it's like, I'm gonna go work in this neighborhood to do the same thing and not understanding how much like compassion really goes into working with in education in general. Like, and I think there's just another hurdle when you're come, you take a different road to get to that community than the students you're working with do because you have to really take a step back and realize that you don't know what's going on all the time and that you have to really listen a lot more than you speak, which as a teacher can be really hard because yeah (laughs) like you gotta get in there you gotta lead the charge it was something i hadn't even heard of um i taught in buffalo for six years and i didn't really even hear about the term until i started teaching dcps and only through my own research Mm. so like it wasn't even a thing in pd or anything like that no and not I, I didn't hear about it at all in my college like in my master's program it wasn't something we talked about and and Buffalo is diverse but it's segregated and so the area in which I was teaching while my school had some diversity it wasn't it wasn't in the lingo of things that we were talking about it wasn't even addressed and I don't know if that's because of like the breakdown of the different races in our school it wasn't majority black and brown. There was a lot of other different ethnicities. So if like that played a part in it not being part of the conversation, I'm not sure. But it didn't. Yeah, it didn't come up until I started researching. Like, how do I teach in my school? 
that's really interesting because um, that guide to white teachers teaching black boys, they bring up a statistic, I think it was 2014 or 2015, that 82% of teachers in public schools are white. So I think what you're saying is like it was never even brought up because it's not even thought to be brought up because everybody who was a teacher is mostly white, a white female. And we don't, why do we need to have a PD when all, all teachers are, you know, or most teachers are white. Um, even in your school, Indigo, you were talking, or in your district, you were talking about how it was so segregated. I think DC is very similar based on Mm -hmm. the quadrants. Um, and to build off of that, my next question would be, what would you say is like the racial ethnic demographic of your, of your schools or your communities that you teach in? 99% black and brown at our school, Mm -hmm. my school. You can say our school. Okay. You can say that. We just don't want to say the name of the school. That's gotcha, gotcha. Right, and um, mine is about 60% Hispanic and 40% black. Got it. Okay. So, and we were kind of talking before before we got started. Um, uh, Green was bringing up that her school was not prepared at all or didn't even bring up the fact that there was a new shelter that opened up by their school and how they weren't prepared at all to support the families and the students that were coming in versus for Indigo and myself, we had, it was a conversation last year when we All had year. the new shelters. We were like, listen, we're getting these this a new, a new shelters b- being built. Um, we need to be prepared for these kids and their families. Mm-hmm. Um, what traumatic um, experiences that they might be um, coming in yeah. with and resources that they might need. So both of you just talk about like what your school did what or what you have done in response to such a massive change in the community that's i i feel like shifts the dynamic of the classroom where if your kids are coming in not bathed or no clean clothes versus um and what your school's response to that is versus just like okay you're gonna have to deal with that and so be it. So just talk about like what your school's response was, if any, and if you felt like it was sufficient. So like we were talking about, there was no anticipation of this at our school. And I think that was something I figured out based on, we do home visits for every family mm-hmm. in my school. And so at the beginning of the year, I had two new students on my roster who were living there and I just saw the same address. And that's when I, when I visited their families there, that's when I put this together. And I've really seen how their like their experiences have changed our classroom in a sense of like they have a very limited stability in almost all forms of their life so I think it's really made me reflect on how our class like that classroom environment needs to feel like their most stable home-like environment which I feel like has taken the form of some like very basic physical things like more pictures of them like in their cubbies in their desks like more like trying to make the classroom feel warmer and more like they have more ownership in it but also I think taking a step back from this I feel like we're under a lot of pressure to have some very concrete strong data all the time and I think this year I've really been able to sort of step back and take a more humanizing approach to how our day goes and prioritize those those times where we're connecting with one another we're, when we're not okay, we can like take time for that instead of being like, okay, that needs to be dealt with somewhere else with someone else in a different way. Like that, like now that stays in house because 
frankly, I don't really trust anyone else in the school mm. to try to deal with that. Sheesh. Not that I think I'm the most prepared for that in the like I've been trained as a teacher like yeah that's very different than what these children need but mm. I think I have the patience and the relationship with them to best deal with it yeah. at this point which is terrible like that's not what the students deserve yeah. like they deserve much more than that but I think just making more space for that like mm. emotional time mm -hmm. and exploring those feelings and not saying like I've heard people say like, we don't cry in this classroom. Like we don't do, and it's like, you, like we are six years old. Yeah, we, we are do six cry. years old, I cry in this classroom. Like, come on. Like, <laughs> what about you, Indigo? How do you feel? Oh, this, this is a, a really heavy topic. Yeah. And I think I've been at my school, this is my fourth year. And we have, even before the shelter opened, we, had a lot going on all of the time because we had students coming in from a different shelter every day. Yeah. So it, but much further away. And so in that process, we were able to help kids kind of get into schools that were closer to where they were living, um, created a different type of dynamic or like thing that we, that we needed to provide for students. With the shelter opening behind the school, we'd been talking about it for months and months and months. And the city didn't have a lot to say about it. DCPS, oh, oh I'm not supposed to say no, that. You say oh, it, okay. you say that. My school district. <laughs> <laughs> you could say, cause I mean, it's a, everyone knows that we're in DCPS. Yeah, yeah. So the school district didn't even have a lot mm -hmm. to offer us. And we'd had multiple meetings over, you know, a variety of months. Um, and I think, because our principal was really mindful of it happening, mm -hmm. that people were mentally preparing themselves, even if we weren't preparing ourselves in the sense of more support. Right. Like, you knew what was coming and what to try to anticipate for the following school year yeah. and what that would mean for fluctuation of kids in and out during the year. Um, but for me, it made me reflect on my practice more. Like, what type of space do I need to create for students? What do we need to do throughout the day that's non-academic mm -hmm. to make people feel like this is their safe space, this is where you, know, you can run the gamut of your emotions and still feel loved. Um, it's hard because the, the district doesn't we don't have any more social workers. We don't have any more therapists. Yeah. Like nothing else yeah. has changed other than like some more trauma training for teachers right. and just being mindful of it. Yeah, yeah. More yeah. than anything. Because I remember we even had like a, a PD where it was like I think most of them start with SEL, like yeah, what you can do to incorporate social emotional learning into your classroom, which is like a morning meeting, but uh, <laughs> as blue. <laughs> I mean, it's a band aid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a band-aid. It doesn't really, it doesn't really solve anything. It yeah. doesn't fix anything. It doesn't mean that the trauma goes away. Right. Like you, I feel like you know, in my previous school that I was at, like you see all these students coming in, and they're just so exhausted and tired, and yeah. like. I mean, I speak for myself when I'm saying, and I'm sure both of you can agree, is that like, or all of us can agree, it's yeah. like, 
we really try to provide a, a stable environment for our kids so that they can just get something. Right. People just don't quite understand that like as educators, it's not just about like teaching math or reading yeah, skills. Yeah, it's like you're you're a mother, like you're a parent. I feel like for me, I feel like I just haven't had a lot of time or energy to kind of process that for myself. Mm. I've had to rely on like a lot of my friends and you know, luckily they can all empathize, but it's like at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's exhausting. It's traumatizing for the kids and it's also traumatizing for you. And it's like, we do, but we still do whatever we can because like, that's our job and that's what we love to do. In the book, they talk about the difference between like the psychic space and the physical space that our kids are coming from. Like the physical space is like the neighborhood, right? The, the housing style, um, the safety, the, um, modes of transportation, like the physical space of where they're coming from versus the psychic space of like what those stressors, how it, it impacts the mindset. So like um, it's described as like a place that's filled with emotions, like fear, anger, um, and like they talk about alienation, feeling alienated and the norms of school that birth from experiences both within and outside the school building. So how would you say in terms of like, cause I know none of us, none of us live in the neighborhoods that we teach. I mean, I do. Oh yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Um, yeah, Blue lives in the same neighborhood. But, but that's also a completely different scenario. I yeah, and we're also in a different location. Yeah. Like we said, the different quadrants of DC or different neighborhoods of DC are so mm -hmm. different. Um, but how do you, and you all already kind of talked about this, how do you prepare to process I mean you already talked about sort of creating a classroom that is responsive and giving kids the support that they need but how do you personally try to I guess relate to the psychic space in which they're coming from and or that that they sort of bring with them to school and how you try to come maybe not combat that yeah how do you combat that in the physical space of your classroom so like you talked about you know I mean, I briefly mentioned morning meeting, but we know that that's not enough. Like, what do you do intentionally throughout the day, I guess, to um, sort of combat the, I guess, like the, um, the psychic space that they are in that goes with them no matter where they are. It doesn't matter if they're in the North Pole or in DC. That's just, that's still the psychic space that they're coming from. So yeah, how do what do you do intentionally in your classroom i can talk on this more from my last school year than this school year okay. um simply because of time constraints this year in my classroom i don't have as much availability in the day to do the types of things that i would normally do to help in this realm um last school year when i had my kids for the whole day <laughs> oh yeah, you got a weird situation with the... And this year it's tougher because I switched kids uh, like four different times during the day and different grade levels and there's a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, but last school year and previous school years, I was trained in responsive classroom, oh. which is like whole school model. I'm sure many educators are aware of that program. And through that training and then on top of that going and getting my yoga teacher training for students like it was a program specifically for educators and so with those 
like two governing practices in my mind um, that helps me approach the kids during the day. So like whether it's actually really solid morning meetings, because morning meeting is a wonderful time to set the tone of the day, but it depends on how much you invest in it. And the more you invest in like deeper emotional practices during morning meeting, like the more you see during the day, those practices like having the ripple effect. And then like, obviously the less that you put into it, the less you get. Um, and then with responsive classroom, there's other parts of the day that we don't, I can't do this year because of, or really any year at it in this district because of time. Um, but like quiet time moments. And so between building strong community, but then also really practicing mindfulness throughout the day in a way that is more tied to yoga than it is to like education, SEL or education, yeah. mindfulness. So like ancient breathing techniques <laughs> and <laughs> um, making space to talk about what you're feeling yeah. and having people hear you out and, and practicing like having intentionally having students practice compassion and and how I used to do a lot of like like in the moment stop like someone's emotional or someone needs something and instead of me always taking on the role of like okay well how can I help you know so and so process whatever this is going through encouraging other students to be like you know so and so needs a really compassionate friend right now like who can show this person some caring time right now to help them talk or you know do whatever it is that they need to do to feel more secure again and that those practices of like building that relationship between students being compassionate towards each other like lightens the load on the adult but it also makes them feel more connected to each other and I think the more they feel connected to each other in that space then it feels like family yeah it feels like no matter who's in the room, someone is there to take care of me. Yeah. And, you know, the teacher is more the facilitator over the emotional load, yeah. kind of, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, that's good. Um, that's like a up in the air kind of top, like overarching of like where my mindset comes through it. But like this year, I struggle with it. Yeah, for sure. For time. I'm thinking, I think, I mean, this is only my second year with my own classroom. So obviously all of my practices are developing at best. <laughs> but I think one thing that with some like new behaviors in my classroom that I've never seen before, I've tried to take a step back. I think I always sort of blamed myself in the beginning because I mean, there is a lot of, there's plenty to critique about a white woman in this setting. So I think I, that's some of my closest friends. You understand how much I internalize yes, about yeah. everything that happens. So I think I'm trying this year. One of the things I do every day now is when there is a moment of big emotion that is threatening in general to mm -hmm. the classroom, to the student themselves, to other students, whoever, is once we've like secured everyone's safety, I take a moment to think about what 
and write down what happened in the five minutes before that. Mm. Like who came in the room, what other adult came in the room, what student came in or left, like who, mm. like what was different about that moment or what might've been the trigger for what mm. had happened. Because I think I do have a lot to learn about like the psychic space each of my students is coming to my room with because even if they're giving or showing similar behaviors or bringing us similar energy to the room, to me, it's definitely not always coming from the same place or the same yeah. experience. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I think I'm starting, that has helped me sort of take my emotions out of it mm. and be like, okay, like maybe I did say something, I gave a direction in a way that wasn't helpful to them. Mm. I mm. gave them a challenge that they weren't ready to address. I pushed them out of a break too quickly. I thought mm. they were calm and they weren't, mm. you know, like, instead of being like, you did this wrong, what did you do better? It's like, no, like we just, maybe this is the wrong way to do this and this was the first time, this wasn't the best way to handle this because mm. we're always changing, they're always changing. Mm. And so is that psychic space to an extent. Yeah. So I think just trying to really pay attention to the little things that are happening because I think those really add up for our students for sure. and keeping a closer eye on those helps understand how we can keep it, mm. keep our sin. Yeah, if you, if you think about like, yeah, yeah. So you think about we're all adults, right? Yeah. And um, <laughs> That's what we're supposed to be. <laughs> no, no, but like, you know, in our own minds, like think about a morning where you walked into school, somebody's out, you're covering, you know, you, you're taking on coverage for another teacher. The copy machine is broken. And you, and you have all these like, you know, little things that are piling up into your, you know into your head okay this uh you know what maybe i can overcome this right now and i can overcome that and i've got a strategy for this da da da, da. Mm -hmm. but then like think about a day where you didn't get enough sleep mm -hmm. and then that happens yeah. and even as adults our responses to small triggers yeah. during the work day can feel so huge yeah. and as a little body it's like something i always try to keep in my mind is that like Okay, so in my adult body right now, um, I'm stress sweating, I have a little bit of a headache, I'm a little more irritable, mm -hmm. but in a seven-year-old's body, like thinking about what those big emotions are feeling like mm -hmm. and how they're going to spill out because they, they don't have the strategies to, or the coping mechanisms, or even really at that age how to verbalize, you know, like, well, I had a really bad morning, or, you know, so this went wrong, and then like, my pencil broke and like that could be it yeah. you know yeah, and yeah. so like sometimes in those moments where like I have to be compassionate to like what is going on with them that like whatever it is that that big emotion is coming out in like it's it's probably not really about me it's not really about what the other kids are saying to them even though that might have been the trigger mm -hmm. like it's coming from a different place that I might never understand Oh, yeah. never really get and so like mm. how am I compassionate in that moment yeah. to that to those big emotions mm. that was good you all <laughs> <laughs> I was over here mm, mm. <laughs> um, next I think that's a perfect way to end that segment but um, next um, there's a portion in the book about teacher gossip and about how we talk about kids like you know in um, during our breaks or um, in the teacher's lounge and how oftentimes, like, we talk about, well, have you met the mom? That's the way, da 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 And we gossip about the child and their family. 
and blame their circumstances for the way they are, which is like, to an extent, yes, valid. Like mm. their current life situation is exactly why they're having a hard time. They're having a hard time. <laughs> but in terms of how you all like interact with your um, with your teammates and your coworkers, how like what would be the percentage of like positive versus negative talk in your interaction when you talk about students and how would you say it impacts you mm. i think it de- for me because i've taught a variety of grade levels mm-hmm. i think it changes based on the grade and the age of the kid sure. so with older kids i find that there's a lot more negative kind of conversation well like oh they've been this way since kindergarten or you know that and and from a you know a standpoint your you know your choices become habits and they start to to make up the type of person you are so like to an extent I understand but they're still kids and they're still growing they still have opportunities to change and make an active choice to be different or to to express their emotion in a way that is more conducive to the learning environment, you know? Right, right, right. Um, But I found that in the younger ages that there's less blame more so. And like, well, they're they're so little, they're still growing. They're still learning. Like, you can chalk it up more so when they're five or six and seven to they're small and they they're not sure what right and wrong is yet first when the kids start to get older i think the conversations start to shift well they know what's right and wrong and they're choosing to do xyz so i've found just personally that it changes based on age yeah i think our conversations i talk i'm fairly close with my team i think we collaborate like at one of the higher capacities that I've seen in terms of groups working together in schools, especially when teams turn over so frequently. We've been together for two years. Like it's a good situation. And I think part of that is reflected in how we talk about students because I think, especially this year, I found myself backtracking like, oh, I was really frustrated this morning with whatever happened. Like I got upset, I got frustrated and it always, I feel like it always sort of comes back to I didn't like reach the goal that the school was putting on me Mm. and you know like I was like oh I didn't get (laughs) through this foundations test because we uh, surprise nine o'clock in the morning we weren't doing our best like we were not there like and so I think my team has been good at helping me personally say like oh like this morning didn't go well because I feel like I didn't get everything accomplished that I was supposed to because we took a different route and that I think because we boil it back to like okay like we can't control what happened this morning like that's over how are we gonna work together to like fix it this afternoon like mm-hmm. okay I'm gonna send three kids across the hall to finish the test because that room is having a really calm day and like that's a quiet space for them where like we might not be having a super calm day yeah. so I think we haven't I think we talk a lot about students and their parents in the beginning of the year Mm -hmm. but I think that sort of fades and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing in terms of when we're establishing those relationships Mm -hmm. we sort of talk through those interactions but later I mean I definitely don't see parents as much in person throughout the year after the beginning of the year it feels pretty consistent as we're trying to set everything up but then 
I think that load sort of shifts to like meeting those MOI goals, the middle of the year, the end of the year, catching up on all of those things instead of like fostering those relationships. Have you all ever had any parents that had an issue with you being white and made that clear? Or, no. Not, not clear, no. Okay. I've, I've heard like rumblings, yeah. like gossip, gotcha. but like who can trust gossip? Yeah. People, and, and the further it comes from the source, the, the more skewed it is. So yeah. like I personally just like never, if I heard a rumbling, I just let it go. Yeah, okay. And no for you too? Yeah, yeah I don't think so. Okay, well that's good. Because I know um, our friend had a parent that I think she uh, the she had to fail her daughter in writing, and mm -hmm. the mom responded very. You white teacher, well, she used some more you know some bad words in there, but <laughs> you white teachers are just out here trying to fail our sons. Blah 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 blah. Um, I should have never trusted you what did it and went in mm. and she's crying because like she's thinking I mean she's taking it very personally obviously yeah. but I think her concern was more like this is a parent that's mad at me versus this is concerning that a this parent has this view that I'm out here just trying to fail mm -hmm. black children in general mm -hmm. um, so how reflective would you say that you all are? I <laughs> This podcast has shown how reflective you all are, but in terms of like, do you all intentionally set aside time to think? I mean, Green, you talked about how you think about the five minutes prior to the students blow up, like what happened, who came into the classroom, all of that. But just like, how reflective are you in your practice in terms of... Um, not just like lesson plans and like, oh, I probably could have phrased this question better, but just how um, responsive you are to the changes in the community and how it impacts kids. Like for example, we had quite a bit of shootings um, last year and the beginning of this year. The year that before led that. To a lot of news coverage and like how, how responsive were you to that in the classroom with your kids? Specifically when it comes to the violence around school, that was something that I thought about a lot, yeah. a lot. Well, and, and the year before you came, mm -hmm. it was worse. worse. And you know, there were times where I could hear the gunshots outside of the window, close the window. And I think that like for some time, I was in a space of like fear more than anything i never feared like my safety in the building mm -hmm. but like when when i walked outside of the building you know what what did that feel like and how did i process what was going on mm -hmm. um but then i got to a space where like it wasn't phasing me mm -hmm. like i'd hear the gunshots and i'd keep teaching mm -hmm. and then it was like okay i can't this this is not normal and i i'm being I'm, it's becoming normal to me, so like now I need to reevaluate again. Yeah. Like, how, like what what ha what shifted, and how do I come to a, like a a medium between like understanding that like okay this is a part of what's happening in the community, like where's the happy medium between fear and ignoring it, mm -hmm. and so that year I spent a lot more time advocating 
for better equity in our school. Um, I got involved in a lot of different um, groups, different fellowships that service children. Um, in schools like ours, I went to city council. Like I did, I spent more intentional time reading about why these things happen in neighborhoods mm -hmm. like ours, what the district is not doing to address it, what the city is not doing, what uh, communities are not doing, and talking about it with everybody that I could. Mm -hmm. And I spent a lot of time talking uh, to people that were not, that would, if I hadn't talked to them, would never spend a minute thinking about it. And how our society keeps it going and how no one's doing anything, quotes, yeah, air, quotes. <laughs> air quotes, to help or even to understand. And I think that understanding helped my mind process it and shift. Whereas like, you know, you go into as a white woman that grew up in a completely white rural town, went to school in a city that was mostly segregated and then moving to DC and then working in this, you know, completely African American school, like I had a lot of wake up calls. Yeah. Like a lot that I had to process and deal with and and just like checking my biases, checking what, you know, I thought versus what is mm -hmm. and taking time to do it. Yeah. And yeah. I think I got off topic somehow. No, I don't know what the topic good, was. It was leading to my next question. Yeah. Yeah, I think I just try to make. I feel like when I reflect on just my experience at school every day, especially mm -hmm. this year, it can be pretty overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And I think so. Oftentimes, I feel like I'm not ready to do that emotional work mm -hmm. after time at school. So I think mm -hmm. breaks and things like that. I've really spent a lot less time this year on breaks, lesson planning, or doing things like that, like concrete things, like making new centers. Like I used to think that was like what I needed to do over winter break of like, but Sleep. if I do all my centers for January and like laminate all this stuff, like look at this tangible productivity I have. And it's like, cause that's very much something that like, I, it makes me feel good to yeah. like have a concrete tangible thing that I created and like feel productive about it. But I think this year I found a lot more value in taking like, okay, like today, I didn't feel great when I left school. I like maybe made a choice I shouldn't have made, what like just don't have like a good feeling in my heart about it. And instead of saying like, okay, then that means I need to like stay at school for three more hours and like fix everything so that everything can be perfect tomorrow. Yeah. It's more like, no, I need to go home and like take a break, like sit down, have a meal and think about like, what are the three things I'm gonna do tomorrow that I'm gonna be really proud of? Like, mm. and sort of trying to chunk my life at school in that way instead of always yeah. taking like oh but like how am I going to teach math tomorrow it's less mm -hmm. which I think also comes with like gaining teaching experience and having more confidence mm -hmm. with the curriculum sure. yeah. and knowing that where I can grow is how I'm supporting my students in a more emotional mm -hmm. yeah. sphere so uh, yeah. yeah for sure um to build on what you were saying Indigo about how you had to uh, check your own biases and, and had to overcome some of those challenges. Um, if you don't mind sharing, how did you how did you do that? I mean, you did, it sounds like you did it on your own because for us, for Blue, Green, and myself, we had a program where it was like 
first class, we talking about <laughs> these biases that you have about <laughs> black and brown babies. Like they hit us hard with it. And yeah. for you, you had to um, start it for yourself. So what did you what did you do? The internet. <laughs> the internet. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I think also our principal does a really good. Well, I, in the beginning, when I first started at school, we had a lot of conversations about this. And one thing that always stuck in my mind, and I still think about it every time I'm like, ooh, maybe my mind's wandering to a place it shouldn't. Like, <laughs> don't put your middle class values on somebody else. And so I have tried to intentionally think like through when I'm in any situation, like let's say a parent's making a choice that I don't agree with, okay? Or they're speaking to their child in a way that I don't agree with. Um, I then have to sit and think, okay, where is this feeling in my body coming from? Like, why do I feel that what they're doing is wrong or like inappropriate and then try to come from just just try to take the judgment out like it's not my business <laughs> and you know and think about well in the span of life parents and people in general are doing the best they can with what they have and the skills that they have and what they know and at the end of the day every parent loves their child and they want the best for their child and they want to see them succeed and so regardless of my feelings of how you're getting to that point mm. like that is your intent yeah. and so when I think about power right mm -hmm. like if a parent is turning up on you like that's their space where they feel like they have power yeah. or that they feel like they can control whatever is going on and is it hurtful to me sometimes sure mm -hmm. but at the end of the day it's not about me yeah yeah mm -hmm. retweet retweet retweet, retweet. retweet. it's not about me <laughs> yeah. like at the end of the day it's not about me yeah. and if you're trying to do the best that you can for your child and i'm trying to do the best that you can do for your child like where our values are different or where our mindsets or how we speak to people might be different like at the end of the day we share a common goal yeah. and the common goal is what's important mm. and having that trying to have that mindset that no matter what how things look different or sound different mm -hmm. we're all moving towards the same goal mm. Mm -hmm. and we might just be taking a different path there yeah you mm. know mm. it helps just keep it in perspective for me for sure and then, like, what do I have to be, you know, I don't have any space to be judgmental over things, you yeah. know? You know, like, my parents probably parented a lot different than some of my other friends' parents. Yeah. And, like, I know that, you know, like, there were always instances of, like, oh, don't, the, you know, Indigo's dad, the way she t he talks to Indigo. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, like, it's just different. People... Yeah. And just having respect for the differences. Mm, yeah. Even when you were saying, like, it's not about me, and, like, I very much agree with that, but I would say maybe maybe in the older grades, because the, the younger ones, it's easier to connect on that, like, we just want what's best right. for little Johnny, mm -hmm. right? And they're so young, and they just have this infinite amount of love and all of that, but with the older grades, 
it seems to be like it could be about you and your presence as a white teacher um, asserting your, you know, your knowledge and your your stature and all that over 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 these children mm-hmm. and um, I think parents might have a stronger reaction to you being who their their child is looking up to for a year. Oh, well, I was gonna say your most of your staff, like about half of your staff, is white, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say about like forty percent, okay. and that's mostly large all team. lead teachers. And like all of like our, mm. a lot of like the black folks who are in teaching positions are have the lesser position of a TA or mm. a, um, an aide. Mm. So it's like that power dynamic is also mm. a really interesting shift because a lot of our black students see that they see yeah, that yeah, they're yeah. that black folks are diminished in the role, the power of the school. Like it, yeah, exactly. And so like they see that and they. I mean, I've definitely noticed that the way in which our, our, particularly our black cohort of students treat our like male teachers and they treat them rather poorly, like our black Mm -hmm. male teachers. Mm -hmm. And you would think that it would be the opposite because it's like, you know, it's, you know, the black figurehead at home, he's the one that sets the rules, but it's like, exactly. Um, But at our school, I've, I've definitely noticed an interesting shift in the way in which our students sort of um, talk with and treat our um, like black male teachers and it's that of like a subordinate. Mm. It's really unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. Really unexpected. Mm. What does your administration do to help navigate that? Are they they noticing? Or are they even aware? Like, are they aware? I mean, we have, we have, this year we're facilitating like a, like a consistent amount of discussions over race and equity, right? But that idea of having conversations about race and equity isn't necessarily going to be translated in terms of the way in which students interact with teachers. It's more so about how teachers are aware of themselves and how they treat the children. But it doesn't necessarily like play the other way around. So it's like we can have as many conversations about race and equity, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it'll translate to the way in which students treat their teachers. Well, and also if your school consistently insists on hiring mm-hmm. the same, like just right. keeping that the, the pattern, going, yeah. That pattern, um, then of course it's not going to really change because right. you can, like you said, you can have as many conversations as you mm-hmm. want. It's not going to change anything. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that also, I mean, like, I think our school is now sort of cognizant of that fact, and yeah. so we've taken steps to hire, like, to um, be aware in their hiring practices, but also thinking about, like, you know, where can we place men in these positions of power right like in terms of we had a uh, vice principal position open and our teachers actually got to like sit down and like interview the people who were being considered to be hired and were the ones that um we were the ones that made the decision or we were the ones to support and make that decision so now we have um a new black male assistant vice principal but i think but that's also it's just like that's just one example, right? There should be more. Which is, I feel like this is making me think about where I feel like everyone is really quick to critique the diversity of any school Mm -hmm. in any capacity. And it's almost like the school that you work in Mm -hmm. is like the closest 
in a way to what like a lot of people think would be the solution right. to diversifying schools mm-hmm. in terms of like you're representing a lot of different mm-hmm. economic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, right? Like things like that in the school. But you've all I've also read some like interesting arguments for like an all black school, mm-hmm. all black educators, all black students, like that is the school, and mm-hmm. it's like a very interest. I can only imagine how like what my parents who are like went to segregated schools at, mm-hmm. in their early lives like yeah. what like mandated segregated schools not self-selected mm-hmm. you know, segregated schools how that how they would react to that now mm-hmm. and just thinking about what we spend a lot of time talking about like white teachers in these schools full of mm-hmm. black and brown students but we aren't like what is the solution I'm not sure what we're like what is the what do we think is the best fit for everyone as we grapple with a public education system mm-hmm. that isn't functioning correctly mm-hmm. what are we working towards what's the better option than where we're at now mm-hmm. because i don't think there's a best option for everybody mm-hmm. because it's such an institutional issue across like we can't change the history that brought us here but we can work on what happens next mm-hmm. but we don't no one has the solution to that yet so it's interesting yeah. to think like yeah. Like, what are we gonna do? Right, <laughs> like, yeah. right. Which I think is where we're kind of at right. now. That's kind of where we're at. It's like, well, what do we do? Which is why this is perfect. Right. This is why I want to have this this podcast because I'm thinking in my mind like when I th- like you two. That's who I think about. People who are changing the game and like because a lot of people are like, well, we don't need to have as many white educators in urban schools. Like we need to have, like I know uh, the program we coming, we're coming from has like a black teacher initiative, educator initiative, which is great, but like we can't be telling white folks they can't be teaching kids in the hood anymore. Like you can, you can still do that. Mm-hmm. But I think the two of you are perfect examples of like people who have like broke those, um, the, the issues that we have with like programs like Teach for America that just, pushes these young white mostly female teachers in the most traumatic high-risk sensitive communities that need strong educators mm-hmm. um and so yeah yeah i think part of that is not that there's anything wrong with first and second year teachers right, but right you have to develop your skills somewhere, right? Yeah. And at no matter what, some group of children has to be your first class. Yeah. And statistically, <laughs> I learned this in college, the statistic is you are not effective for your first five years of teaching. And so, isn't that a hard That's stat? So That's so sad. That's so it's sad. heartbreaking. And how many people make it to five years? Like and how many people to make it to five exactly. years and don't quit, right? Mm-hmm. So I think another part of the puzzle piece is how do you get qualified teachers in spaces where it's hard to teach and get them to stay? Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that answer is, right? Like there's some factors that make a school attractive to work at, whether whatever whatever's going on in it is, you know, you can't, you can't predict the behaviors of the children or what they come in the door with, but you can have certain other things set up that make it an enjoyable place to work yeah. you know are do you have people that are investing in your practice mm-hmm. people that are consistently 
um, investing in you and making it known that they're investing in you because no one wants to feel like they're going through the struggle and nobody cares, right? So having resources for your classroom, you know, cer certain little things like supplies, like, it, <laughs> but no, but <laughs> pencil. pencils, but those types of, so I worked in a charter school for six years where, you know, it, it's a much different game than public education. Yeah. And even though like I had like a wide awakening when I came to DC that DC charter schools don't function the same way Buffalo charter schools function right. because <laughs> Buffalo public but Buffalo public has a lot of issues. There's a lot of segregation, there's a lot of teacher turnover, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of like probably what's going on in DC but like people sweep it under the rug yeah. like it's not happening. Um, and so all these different charter schools popped up in Buffalo. But they are generally places that are investing in children. Mm -hmm. And like the constant theme, and it's not all charter schools in DC, but like a theme that I hear a lot, especially charter schools that pop up in Southeast is that like, mm -hmm. they're not servicing children in the best way that they can, or they're using staffing in inappropriate ways, da 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 da, right? Mm -hmm. So coming from a place where I had you know, a diverse bunch of students, racially, socioeconomic. Our teaching staff was not diverse, so. Right, right. Um, but I had what I needed, right, to get the job done. And I made a lot less money than public school teachers, but that was a choice. Yeah. Like, I chose to do that. But because I could have an impact on students, I had what I needed to do it. I had people pouring into me and then coming to DC, you know, like my first year was really hard. I didn't feel like I had those same supports. And at that point I've been teaching for six years. So I was already like technically in DC, like a veteran teacher. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I was like, uh. <laughs> but like, I think the idea, right? Like you want qualified people of all ethnicities yes. in a building yes. because knowing what you're talking about and being able to execute that is what's going to best help children yeah. you know like at at especially in places where they are the need is so great like they they really need someone who can finesse the emotional support the academic support mm -hmm. and have the skill set where they don't just feel like they're floundering yeah. you know yeah. so i think that is part part of the bigger picture is yeah qualified teachers, yeah. people that have been in the game for a long time yeah. and can support. And then and then you can have, you know, your first, second, third year teachers where those people are helping them along in a mentorship role. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I think a lot of schools don't, they don't always talk about, they don't always right. do. Yeah. Um, but I think it's really important. I think a lot of teachers, and I feel like even low-key, when I was a resident, my residency, uh, residency year, I didn't explicitly ever say this, but I think sometimes uh, teachers avoid conversations of race because either like, or even like in a school like ours, that's pretty much 100% African-American. Um, we try not to have these like conversations of like light skin, dark skin, like mm. all of that complex complexionism, if you will. Um, I don't even know if that's a thing. Like, colorism. Colorism. There we go. <laughs> that's the word. Thank you. <laughs> um, how do you sort of combat the the narrative that I think sort of permeates everywhere, which is like 
I'm colorblind or um, race doesn't matter. It's about who you are. Stupid. Like, right? <laughs> just so stupid. But high key, like people who read books like that. And that's why we just because you know it doesn't matter what color you are. We're oh all God. the same, which is like true, but but not race does color does matter. Though. Yeah. Um, so what do you guys do to combat that narrative? Like you need to understand. <laughs> Like in books. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting. I've had a lot of, when I taught upper grades, a lot of conversations about skin color. Mm -hmm. And there were certain things the way that my students talked that I didn't understand. Mm. Like, you know, I would have students that tell me, you know, like, oh, well, you're black. You're just really light skinned. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like, I'm not. I'm white. <laughs> but, like, the, this understanding, like, I, I had to understand it from their perspective and I talked to different people in the building like what's this about like because to me this doesn't make sense and I don't understand why um, we're having like that type of conversation you know where like and they're like well if I say you're white then you know that's racist I'm being racist and I'm like well that's a fact like you know and and so it brings up all these ideas of like what is racism what does it look like and what is the difference between being racist and talking about things that are factual, yeah. you know? And my students did not have a clear understanding of that. Mm, yeah. And so we had just constant conversations. The kids, they'd ask me stuff. And um, I think for me, like seeking out knowledge when I, when I don't understand something, mm. you know, if something doesn't make sense to me, I don't know where it's stemming from. Um, making sure that like within my building reaching out to people that do understand or like have more contacts they've been at the building longer they understand the community more mm -hmm. um but I, I think it's important to acknowledge the colors that we are yeah. because they play a huge role in how we navigate society yeah. and by ignoring that you're you're not setting anybody up for success to yeah. like navigate in a way that is going to make sense and is and you know like helps you yeah you know yeah <laughs> like i'm having a hard time putting it in better words than no, that but no, like that's good. Yeah. but like you you can't ignore it because it plays a role in how you interact with society Thanks. and how you identify within society mm -hmm. and what choices you make based on that and like are you falling into, you know, stereotypes mm -hmm. or are you, you know, really being true to yourself or, you know, like, cause you can, oh, well, you know, I'm a white skinned teacher, so I'm going to be this way. Or like, I have to approach things in a different way. And like, like, just like really understanding, having a good sense of your own identity and really understanding your values helps you have those conversations with students then because they're, at least in my experience, most of them want to know. Yeah. They have questions, they're curious. Yeah. Um, they're curious about your skin, my freckles, my hair. Why you turn red when you laugh. Why are you red? <laughs> yeah, like all these different things. And to me it was like, what? And then I'm like, okay, well let me put it in the perspective of maybe they haven't had a white teacher yet. Like maybe I'm their first white teacher and they are coming from a place of really not knowing and like being curious and it's good. I think being curious is a way to get to know one another better, understand each other better. And so like I encourage them to ask more questions even if they were extremely uncomfortable for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's like 
what I take as mostly my role as a white teacher in a class where none of my students are the same color that I am is sort of get, I mean, they're so young and there's their understanding of the significance of the color of their skin mm. and race in general is still so flexible. Yeah. It's so new. And I think when I was young, we didn't talk about it. Like you didn't talk about the color of your skin or the color of someone else's skin because that was not what you did. Yeah. That was, mm -hmm. you lacked tact if that's how you were mm. going about describe, even like describing someone, you know, like we would never, if I were reading a book, yeah. it was never like, no one would ever raise their hand and say like, oh, I notice her skin is dark. Yeah. Like that would never come up and it wasn't encouraged. Mm. And I think in my classroom now, I try to not shy away from letting my students mm -hmm. talk about it because if we can normalize, like we have differences, but like we can talk about them and they can know that from such a young age, mm. that's going to give them so much more power to think and articulate themselves, hopefully in the future, because they're not going to be afraid of their ideas or afraid of other people's ideas around that mm. they can instead they have practice talking about it which yeah. i don't think i had practice talking about racial differences until mm -hmm. i was like 18 years old mm. you yeah. know so yeah. it's like yeah mm. that's good do you want to add anything um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah get close up on it because you talk about it. uh yeah, I don't even know. I feel like this is like still something that I'm like constantly thinking about in terms of like as a person of color, I'm teaching like primarily black and brown, you know, kids, right? Like, but I think that, but I've, yeah, I've noticed that my kids have an insane curiosity because like for some of them, especially at my, old school where it was like 100% African-American kids. Mm -hmm. It's like they had never really interacted with an Asian person in their life. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of like misconceptions about like where I was from. Did I, how did I, how did I like, how did you speak really good English? And like, mm -hmm. they'd say they'd like, you know, I mean, they'd like touch my hair and they sort of like pet it. And like, they're like, your hair is just so straight and pretty. And it's like, I, but I think that it's also about providing that safety net where like they can ask those questions for me. And it's like, yes, it's it makes me very uncomfortable, but it's also like, I would rather them ask me than like grow up as an adult and like ask a random like Asian person on the street, like, how do you speak such good English, you know? Right, 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 and right. so I think also just like taking the time and the opportunity to like correct any misconceptions along the way. And also like, build that idea of like talking about race and our differences is perfectly acceptable Thanks. you know it's it's okay and yeah. i'd be more than happy to have this conversation with you at any time mm. um but also like being okay to being being okay to sort of like correct misconceptions as well i think For that's sure. that's a thing that like people shy away from is that like you know, if a student comes up to you and says something wildly inaccurate, it's like, oh, well, like we have to be like super gentle. It's like, no, I think that like when you correct misconceptions, yeah. like you need to do what you need to do. Yeah. Um, but, you know, yeah. but yes, like. Yeah, I, and I think um, something that Indigo brought up was like the biggest issue is that race or even colorism and is if you bring it up, it's a negative. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we don't talk about it. Right. And it's like, 
it can't possibly be a negative because it's who you are. Mm-hmm. So immediately we're setting up the precedent that like who you are is mm-hmm. negative. Yeah. We don't talk about the color of your skin because that's negative. That's mm-hmm. bad, right? And by the time they get older, then they develop this idea that like, oh, you, you're darker skin, therefore mm-hmm. you're ugly or whatever. I mean, right. granted, there's been countless studies that have been done that mm-hmm. have proved that that's already been set into their psyche right. before they even got to us. Yeah. But um, cultivating a classroom environment mm-hmm. where... Um, yes, we're going to give you the language to be mm-hmm. able to talk about these things. And it's and not why. negative. And, yeah. yeah, and, and why. why. And that's really important because I feel like people are just always saying like, no, you can't say that or you can't say this. And kids are always wondering why. And it's like the answer yeah. is always like, this is just not what we talk about. This is not something that we say. Right. And that reason is never explicit. So I feel like also being really intentional about like your reasoning yeah. and like understanding the history and also understanding like societal norms now. It's I feel like those are all sort of really important conversations to have with your kids for sure yeah and I think even more so for you all because I mean and for myself too like let's be real I'm a Mm light-skinned black woman in the classroom and I turn red when I laugh and (laughs) (laughs) like last year uh, my kids had a whole 15-minute debate about whether Miss Yellow was black or whether she was white Mm. and they were being respectful of one another and I let them have the conversation. I said, as long as you're not being rude, just go mm-hmm. ahead and have the conversation. Yeah. Because um, some kids were saying that, they're like, that's racist. And I said, no, it's not racist. We're just talking about who I am mm-hmm. and who you all are and how you, how you relate to me. Mm-hmm. So go ahead. Um, but I think it's even more important for you all to do so because they need our students need to understand that you all are okay with that conversation as well and accept them regardless. Yeah. Um, so I guess to close things out, we're already done. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, it's been an hour and 40 minutes. Damn. <laughs> this is the longest podcast we've ever had. Right. To um to close things out, uh, my last question would be to you all, what advice would you give yourself give to yourself um to your first year or to your last year of teaching um students who don't look like you? I think um it's such a learning process. In the first year, when you have no experience going into it, like, it wasn't like I'd, like, it was a completely different environment than I'd ever experienced. And um, I wasn't prepared at all in any sense. Even though I'd had six years of teaching, I was not prepared for what I walked into. Um, specifically how to deal um, and help students with such intense trauma. Like that is what I was not prepared for. And I internalized every single thing that went wrong. Mm. Like the burden of the universe was on me. And I spent every day after every day after that school year, I cried. Some nights I like wouldn't speak for hours. And like be easy on yourself. Like it's gonna take time. But if you put in the effort to learn and you reach out to people that know more than you and you get to understand the community better, like you'll be okay, you know? But you you have to have grace through that. Yeah, I think I spent a lot of time questioning things like that and I would echo that advice. And also sometimes I think about, well, what else would I do? You know, like if I wasn't doing this, where I feel like my heart really is, and I'm really working for this, in 
this system where I think a lot of things are wrong and that I obviously can't lead the charge to fix everything. Like, you have to do something. Like, if you know something is not right, you have to do something. And I think on the days where I'm like, is being a white woman in this classroom the best thing for my kids? I sort of always come back to that idea of like, well, what else am I gonna do? Like, if I care about this issue and this is what I feel like my strengths can really lend themselves to, when I'm in this space of being reflective, trying to gain knowledge of experience and patience from other people, like you can't know something is so broken and just like turn a blind eye and go do something else. Mm. Like you have to dig in and just like be gentle with yourself, but also be better and mm. be patient with it. But know that like you chose this for a reason and make sure you keep reflecting on that yeah. instead of getting so lost in everything that gets thrown at you once you like make moves on that choice to gotcha. be a part of education. Do you want to add anything? Advice that you would give yourself? Um, I think just like echoing the lines of both indigo and green, it's just like giving myself a lot of grace. I, I felt like I just put a lot of pressure on myself um, because I, you know, I knew the traumas and the burdens that my students were coming in, I've, and I felt the need to sort of match that. Like I, I felt like I had to be prepared in every way possible to sort of to help them through the year. And even though it was my first year, and I had, and there are there are times when I was like by myself, which meant that I was, you know, there was no other person to do that with me. It was just me, and I. But I, I wish that. Yeah, I wish I could have told myself, like, it's ultimately, you know, your kids are going to grow and, yeah. you know, they have, you know, like, it's going to be okay. Because yeah. I felt like I had really sort of pushed myself to the limit mm -hmm. and I had really burned myself out. And yeah. by the end of the year, I just, I felt like I had nothing left to give. Yeah. So. Yeah, and uh, the information for the text that we use will be in the liner notes. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, this is The Colors Podcast.